I don't need you, you don't need to be hopping all over. I'm going to read them to you. And let me just say that before I begin, um, <clears throat> you can always get the outline that I preach from. I can text it or email it to you if you're, if you're, and I like people that take notes. I love to see those pens and notes going. And, um, but uh, if, you don't, if you don't get it all, you just let me know. I'll be happy to forward it to you. All right, praise the Lord. Mark, you ready? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Very sweet. I want to read you five verses where that phrase shows up in the Bible. These are the only five phrases where, they, where this, is, uh, this phrase is used, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Just kind of see if you can pick it out in these, uh, in these verses. First is, it shows up in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 23. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was at the table to the right of Jesus in the place of honor, leaning on Jesus' chest. And then further on in chapter 19, verse 26. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, look, here is your son, he said from the cross. And in chapter 20 and verse 2. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And then in verse 21, after Jesus raises from the dead, verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, he tucked his outer garment in, for he had nothing on underneath it, and he plunged himself into the sea. And then finally in chapter 21, the last chapter of John, verse 20, Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. This was that disciple who leaned back against Jesus' chest at the, at the Last Supper and asked, Lord, who is the one who is going to betray you? So five times the phrase is used, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who gave John that name? Who named John the disciple whom Jesus loved? Have you ever wondered? He's the only disciple that was ever referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I can see you're thinking about that right now probably. Where did he come up with that name? Well, let me just help you and say that there's no indication anywhere in scriptures that Jesus ever singled John out as his favorite. There's, there's nothing in scripture that even remotely suggests that Jesus ever said anything publicly about John or to John to suggest that, that Jesus kind of loved him more or that he was special um, or anything like that. So, it's in the gospel. The Holy Spirit allowed it to be placed in there. And every time the author of John referred to himself in the narrative of Jesus' life, he refers to himself not as John or as I was there when this happened and I was leaning on Jesus' chest. He simply says, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, thus and so, and goes on with the narrative. So it was John himself 
who came up with the idea to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why would he do that? Well, in short, John saw Jesus' love for him. And he saw Jesus' love for him as the central force of everything that Jesus did. Somehow, as all the disciples were studying Jesus, as they walked with him those three and a half years, as, as they were considering him, John looked, and the thing that stood out above everything to John was, God, through Jesus, loves me. Jesus loves me. And he decided to focus in on that, and that became the preeminent feature of Jesus in the mind of John, and it became the thing that he associated himself with. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Hallelujah. So John came up with the idea of calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He chose it of his own free will, and he defined himself in those terms. Jesus loved me. Now, perhaps other disciples may have seen Jesus' mission as the preeminent motive of Jesus' relationship with them. Jesus has a mission. He selected me as a disciple to help him with that mission. That may have been prominent in the minds of some of the other disciples who followed him. And, uh, and they thought uh, that he saw them as followers or as, quote, ministers of his gospel. And so they may have referred to themselves, as they heard John refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, they may have conversely referred to themselves as the disciple who followed Jesus or the disciple who served Jesus. And that wouldn't have been inappropriate or wrong, would it? In other words, these guys all had the opportunity to choose how they saw themselves related or connected to Jesus. And John refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that John exercised his own prerogative to identify with Jesus' love for him. And by doing it, what I want to share with you today, take a few minutes, and we'll go through a couple of these examples, is that it brought John to a special place of favor. Seeing Jesus' love for him as the outstanding and preeminent um, connection that God had with him opened John up to some special favors that the other guys didn't experience. And in 1 John chapter 4.10, one of my favorite verses concerning the love of God, there's a deep revelation in it. I'll just simply read it to you. It says, In this is love, or this is what love is. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice, or the word is propitiation, which is the exact same word as the mercy seat that's set on top of the ark. It's a whole lot of thought, but just for you scholars, you just kind of put that away in your mind. He's saying, this is love. Now, if he's about to say something about what agape and what love is, anybody who knows God ought to be perking up their ears and going, oh, I want to hear what's coming next. He's going to define what love is. And some people might think, this is love going out and taking care of the homeless. This is love being kind to your family and strangers and friends. This is love giving to the needs of others. Or this is love speaking 
in tones of kindness, and this is love, not being selfish or self-centered, and none of those things would be inappropriate or wrong. I mean, certainly those are manifestations of love, but could we be honest and say that people that are not very loving can do those things? People can do that. They don't necessarily have to be loving to do that. You could be that way. There's people that are very moralistic and um, have very strong convictions about what the moral aspect of their life should look like, and they don't necessarily have the love of God in their life, or they may not be necessarily um, uh, people that have a strong love. They just have those strong convictions. So the point is, what he's going to say about love obviously sets love apart from any kind of earthly evaluation. This is love, and I love the first thing he says, not that we loved God. Love is not defined about how you relate with God. Love is defined by His relationship to you. God does not weigh your love by how much you prove that you love God through the things you do, but how much you receive and let Him love you. That is how God measures His love. Do we let Him love us? John said, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Hallelujah. I'd like to ask you, I'd like to, present you, let me put it in those terms, I'd like to present you with a few questions that I'd like you to ask yourself. These are things you should think about concerning yourself. Here's this first big question. Is your relationship with Jesus defined by how you are towards Him or how He is towards you? Is your relationship with Jesus, in your mind as you consider it, Is your relationship, when you evaluate it, is it defined by how you respond to Him, how you are towards Him? Or is your relationship defined by how He is towards you? It's a very important question. Because many Christians see themselves as having come to Jesus more than Jesus having come to them. When they think about how they got saved, or they think about their walk with God, they're their, their concept of their relationship is more about their activity towards God than His towards them. They see their relationship with Him more as a necessity on their part than a desire on God's part. Let me say that again because I want you to catch that. Many Christians see their relationship with God more as a necessity on their part than a desire on God's part. I need Him. More than he wants me. Do you get where we're going with that? They see their walk with God being driven more by their decisions to pursue him than his decision to pursue them or his desire to pursue them. Do you feel sometimes that your walk with God is, is all, there's, it's, it's active because you are pursuing him, but when you're not pursuing him, there's nothing there. In other words, God is like an obelisk positioned somewhere in eternity, an obelisk of goodness, an obelisk of deity, and your whole relationship is whether you are running after Him, facing towards Him, obeying Him, responding to Him, but He doesn't move. He's just positioned. And we know that that God is immovable in one sense of the word. It's part of His nature. However... We can, we can get the very unfortunate idea that our relationship is all about our energies towards Him 
rather than his energies towards us. Listen, God is very much a pursuer of men. The Bible doesn't say that the Lord was drugged down out of heaven because people needed him. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There's something here for somebody to get a hold of. If you're one of these Christians, as I'm describing, and if you're one of them, then you probably have a stronger sense of your need for him than you do his love for you. Many Christians that I've talked to over the years, when they talk about their relationship with God, their relationship really sits in how desperately they need His love, need His grace, need His forgiveness. But their revelation about how desperately He loves them and wants them and desires them is is kind of anemic. It's kind of weak. So God is always responding to their brokenness, responding to their need, responding to their mess-ups. You get what I'm saying? Do we mess up? Are we broken? Do we need Him? All those things are true. Are they not true? But it's not the strength of our need. It is the strength of His love that makes our relationship. Can you say amen? So if you're one of those Christians, you might have a stronger a stronger sense of your need than you do of his love. And you probably see God's thoughts towards you as responses to your actions more than his love towards you. Many people, they just see that, that if God is going to move towards them or on their behalf, it's going to be because uh, they've taken some action towards him. But it says in 1 John, I read it to you, In chapter 4, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. When we were sinners in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That act of God leaning into us and loving us and pursuing us and finding us didn't end when you became a Christian and now the ball is in your court and the whole relationship is you trying to get the ball back over the net and do everything just right so that God can respond to you. Are you listening to me? Is it important for God For us to respond to the Lord in relationship, yes. But this thing never changes where the Lord is not the Lord of our relationship. We are the recipient. It always stays in that context that He is pursuing me because He loves me. And John tapped into that. I am the disciple who Jesus loved. If you are one of those people who sees things that way, you might even think that, that Jesus' love for you is some kind of divine utility that's meant to assist your loving God so that you could do it better. You know what I'm talking about? You, you mess with your computers, you have these little utilities that help the programs to happen. But God's love is not just some divine utility so that you could do a better job of loving Him. Loving God with all your heart, strength, mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself is not the New Testament version of the law. It was Jesus responding to the Pharisees when they said, well, what is the law? If you were to sum it up, Jesus said loving God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself is the summation, the quantifying of the law. He didn't say it's the New Testament law. He wasn't saying Christians... I'm going to make it easier for you than they had it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had to go out and do all those things, but I'm going to make it easy for you. You just need to go out and love me with all your heart and then love others. Have you ever met anybody who did that? 
I've met a lot of people that are right here who've tried and are trying, but I haven't met anybody who's done that. Wait a minute, I take it back, I did meet somebody. 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, his name is Jesus. There's only one person who loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, strength, and loved his neighbor as himself, laid down his life for his friends. That name is Jesus. He's the one who did that. So guess what? He kept the law for me, even the law of love. So this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. John saw a revelation in agape and the love of God that is, I mean, it threatens much of the very theological fabric of New Testament thinking because so many preachers and teachers and New Testament thinkers have literally taken the spirit of the Old Testament and literally redevised a new law. And Christians are not overcoming much more than, than people in the Old Testament did because, because their concept of love has simply been uh, reworked and put back into human love, effort on your part, God is passive, waiting around for you to get with it, for you to get active. When you get with it, then God will respond to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, there's nothing wrong with saying God responds to faith or God responds to obedience. But if that's all it is, if that's all that it is, then we're not the sons of God. We're not already seated with Him in heavenly places. We don't have this finished work that God has given us the down payment for because it's still waiting for our perfection to complete it. The reality is, is that Jesus completed and made perfect the love of God. It's with that perfection on His part. He's always pursuing you and I. Can you say amen? The temptation is for people to say, well, I'm not very spiritual, so God's not very interested in me. That is the, that's the upshot of that thinking. If I'm not very spiritual or if I'm not reading my Bible as much as other people are, if I'm not praying as much, then God is not that interested in me. But the reality is that God loves you with a passionate love that has very little to do with your performance and how much you do or don't do. Now, is it to your benefit that you read your Bible and pray and walk with the Lord? Yeah, it's... It's, you know, uh, life can be difficult. Life could be a little bit easier. I choose easy if I can get it done. The Bible says labor to enter the rest. So if you're going to labor, labor to, labor to, to walk in the blessing of God. But the reality is that what makes all of this work is the fact that God loves you. He loves you with a... With a well, I like the bumper sticker I saw. God, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. You ever seen that one? I like that. You never seen that bumper sticker? Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. When I first thought, I laughed. I thought, that's hilarious. And then I thought, well, I think that. Everybody should think that. That's healthy thinking. That's good thinking. You know, that's the way God wants you to think of yourself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Think with me a little, little further on this. John could have referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus forgave or the disciple whom Jesus took pity on or the disciple Jesus tolerated. 
And he would identify probably with a lot more people than the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because most of you probably have a hard time believing that you're the disciple whom Jesus loves. In the context of disciples, you probably don't see yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loves because you think, well, he loves the one that's like never overeating and always fasting and doesn't watch TV, just reads the Bible and devotionals. And if they have any spare time, goes out and prays for people, witnesses. And am I putting those things down? My God, absolutely not. Would to God that we did more of that. However, if anything is going to happen in the kingdom of God, if those things are going to increase in our life, it's going to be because we are the disciple whom Jesus loves. Those things are, are, are works that, that come out of a person who's motivated by the fact, wow, Jesus loves me. And it's bubbling up. It's, it's, it's showing out of that love relationship. So John could have thought of, you know, mo- most Christians... They, they see their connection to God as, I was a sinner, and, and the Lord forgave me of my sins, and I need him, and, and I need him to forgive me today. So I'm the disciple whom Jesus forgave. Look, the Apostle Paul said, uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So even the great Apostle Paul, it, it, at the core of his relationship with God, saw himself as, I was that rotten guy that was killing all those Christians, but the Lord tolerated me. God had mercy on me, and I am running every day of my life, serving as as hard as I serve the devil. I owe God ten times more, and and he spent his life kind of paying back, if you will. So he saw himself as the disciple whom Jesus forgave. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But I would think that most Christians see themselves as the the disciple Jesus took pity on or the disciple he tolerated, the disciple he forgave. But maybe not the disciple whom Jesus loves. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to challenge you and encourage you and, and try to hold the door open to you and invite you to step up. Yes, you. You to step up and go from being the disciple whom Jesus tolerates, the disciple he's standing there tapping his foot going, man, it's just how long can this go on? When are they going to get with it again? The Lord's looking at you again. And I'm going to encourage you to to exercise the prerogative that John exercised and say of yourself, I am the disciple who Jesus loves. Do you think that John was the disciple who Jesus loved because John was the disciple who was lovely? The son of thunder, big mouth, (laughs) wanting to call fire down from heaven to burn up the people that wouldn't listen to Jesus. Jesus couldn't help but love him because he was so cute, because he was adorable. Is God such a big fool that, that he is attracted to our loveliness but ignores People who are wounded and broken, and so because of it, they're a little less lovely? No. The love of God is beyond human comprehension. He loves because of himself, because of what he is and who he is. He has an unquenchable love for you and a care and a concern for you. And that is 
that is not motivated by how cute or lovely you are. It's motivated by the fact that he loves you. And John tapped into that and referred to himself as I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. So, you know, John could have said, well, I'm the disciple who Jesus forgave or took pity on or tolerated. But all of those terms would have focused on John's estimation of himself. And that's one of the things that I have to say to you this morning is that I think that a lot of us, we define our relationship with God by looking at ourselves. My relationship with God is what it is because of me. And the Lord is saying, I'd like you to try something new this year. Try looking at your relationship with me based more on what I am and who I am than how you are in your behavior. You see, saying that I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved puts everything on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. But saying I'm the disciple who was forgiven or tolerated or God had pity on me is all about me and my worthiness. And it, and it regulates the love of God based on how I am rather than how he is. That's grace. Somebody say, praise the Lord. But when John saw that Jesus loved him, he was able to overlook his own shortcomings, and he chose to declare himself as the favored son of God's love. His focus on Jesus' love for him brought him into a position of favor. I mentioned earlier I wanted to point out a few of these. First of all, John at the Last Supper, while all the disciples are going, who's going to betray you? It's not me, is it? It's not me. It's surely not me. And they're all, you know, chattering about who is it. John leans over, puts his head on Jesus' chest, says, Lord, who is it? And the Lord says, it's Judas. (laughs) I mean, he answered John. So at the Last Supper, John gets inside information. That's favor. You know, God's willing to say some things to you about what's going on in the world today. What's going on in your family? What's going on in your life? God's willing to talk to you more than you realize. None of those guys felt comfortable to lean their head on Jesus' chest and say, Lord, who is it? But John felt, Jesus will tell me I'm his favorite. (laughs) He did. He thought, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. Jesus loves me. I'm going to ask him. He's going to tell me. Why do more people not behave towards God that way? Because they don't believe he's, they're his favorite. That's right. And so because they don't ask, they don't receive. Amen. Are you listening to me? Right. Well, I'll tell you, it, 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 it went on from there. John was the unharassed or the unharassed access, had unharassed access at the trial of Jesus. There was Peter standing out in the garden and they were harassing him. You're one of them. You were with him, and he's cussing. I don't know what the blank you're talking about, man. I'm not even from, I, I know I sound like I'm from Galilee, but I'm not, I'm not. I don't even know the guy. Three times he denies him, and they're, they're, they're hassling him. Read it. John was in there where they were trying him. He walked right into the court. He didn't care, and they knew that he, that he was with Jesus. They never questioned him. He walked right past the guards. He, nobody was hassling him. He was standing there just, I want to be near Jesus. I want to, you know, show him my moral support. I want to be there. It went on from there. At Calvary's cross, 
John was entrusted with the care of Jesus' mom. That's favor. Mom, there's your new son. Man, that's favor. Hallelujah, you get to take care of Mary. Do you know how many Catholics would give their eye teeth? (laughs) Seriously, man. Oh, buddy. So, So how do you get that privilege? I'm the disciple who Jesus loves. Jesus knew that John, knew that John had that level of confidence and received that love. Hallelujah. Of course, it went on from there. Whom did the Lord reveal himself to in the future, in the end of the age, written in the book of Revelation to John? See the doors that love opens? Faith works by love, somebody said earlier. John was opening up the service, making that point. Finally, let me point out to you that John was the only unmartyred disciple. Now, you know, we can make all kinds of comments about why, and and I'm sure the theological debates could go on ad nauseum, but I I can't help but notice that the, the, the distinction that I am the disciple whom Jesus loved had something to do with the fact that they couldn't kill him. Now, there's an old legend, and we don't know if it's true or not, that, that they tried to boil John in oil, and he didn't boil. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know that he was banished to an island. Now, they had no problem killing all the rest of the disciples. They were all martyred, all, of the, all the disciples. But John gets banished. And he gets to live a ripe old age. He's about 99 years old when he dies. 99 or 100 years old. Old man. Ripe old age. The scripture with long life I will satisfy you gets fulfilled. Have you ever wondered why are these promises that God has put in his word not coming true for me? If you will put your relationship with God in the context of God loves me. It will open up the promises of God to you. Faith will begin to operate. All those things that seem to be beyond your reach will come into focus and come into reach. There are too many Christians today striving and struggling to try to get what the Lord has said is freely yours to happen in their life. But their struggle is not a struggle of faith. It's a struggle of love. They don't see themselves as worthy of His love. They don't believe in their heart of hearts that the Lord actively loves them. They believe God's love is a utility that is measured out in response to their behaviors and their actions. And as long as you see yourself in that kind of relationship with God, at best, the mechanisms if I could use that term, of faith, are not going to flow in the fluidity of a relationship such as God has ordained that it should. Everything moves into a flow when you enter into the agape, the love of God. Can you say to yourself, I am the girl, I am the guy that Jesus loves? You probably can look at someone in the room and say, now I can see God loving them. Now I know God loves her. I know God loves him. And why do you think that? Because look at what they do. 
But when you look in the mirror, you think, well, I know he wants to love me, but I'm not letting him because I'm not tithing or whatever it is, or I'm not doing this, or I'm not doing that. We pull back, we withdraw, we hold ourselves back from allowing our hearts to receive that love and believe that He loves us because we see ourselves as less compliant than another Christian, or one of the examples we see in the Scripture. Now, Trust me, I'm a pastor. I don't want anybody living a lazy, compromised life. Not myself, not my family, not you. So I'm not up here saying things to encourage people to be lazy and non-compliant or to think that obedience to God doesn't matter. It matters. It certainly has its place. As I said, life could be easy. Life could be hard. Now, life's going to be hard no matter how righteous you are. Life's going to be hard. But, you know, if you walk in fellowship with God... The hardness comes, but the bridges over troubled waters make themselves available to you, and you overcome. Hallelujah. But let me tell you, hallelujah, that 1 Corinthians 13 and 13 says, Now abides faith, hope, and love, but they're not equal. The greatest is love. You see, other Christians can identify themselves primarily with God's mercy or His forgiveness, as I said, or even His calling. And these are all fine, but they're not the highest connection to God. Having faith that you are the disciple whom Jesus forgave, that's great. That is great to have faith. I am the disciple. My identity is primarily that I am the disciple whom Jesus forgave and has to keep on forgiving. That is truly great. Or having hope, hope in heaven. I am the disciple who's going to heaven. I have assurance. I know I'm believing the right things. I know I'm going to heaven. That's great. But the greatest, the one that cannot fail, the greatest that will fill you with all the fullness of God and make the fluidity of relationship with Jesus occur in your life is knowing and believing and confessing God's love for you, that is the greatest. Amen. Let me close by sharing you with you here now the wisdom of the man who distilled his own identity down to the simple calling card, hello, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. Hear the wisdom of this man years later after he had been living a life as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He writes, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has to us. God is love, and the one who resides in love resides in God, and God resides in him. By this love, by this, love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because just as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. When you understand, this is the disciple who distilled his identity down to, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved then you realize this is not a theological explanation of love. This is a man talking about 
how to see yourself because he says, the one who fears is not perfected in love because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. What he's doing is he's talking to Christians who pretty regularly are afraid that God's not happy with them. And maybe you are doing stupid things. And let me help you. Stop. You have the power. Because God loves you, you can do all things. So let me just suggest to you, if you're doing stupid things, please stop. You're just hurting yourself. But, but John is warning you. He's saying the one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. In other words, he sees himself as the disciple who Jesus is always having to forgive and tolerating. But he doesn't see himself as the disciple who Jesus loves. And my heart breaks because I think a good number, maybe, maybe even a majority of Christians, are not walking in the fullness of fellowship with God. Their relationship is, is crippled. And, and, and they, they sit in churches all the time and listen to messages. And many of the things that are said to them, they feel that are high up on a shelf and out of reach to them. And they, they, they constantly kick that can down the road. They feel disqualified and unqualified because they're afraid of judgment. Because they believe that their walk with God is more about them than it is about His love for them. It's more about what they do than what He does for them. And so John is saying, rise up above that fear of punishment and know that you are the disciple whom Jesus loves. And that way, when you do your stupid things, you will be standing in the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ and the grace and the power to be better the next time, to overcome. The Lord told me, and I'll close with this little anecdotal story, the Lord told me um, when I first got saved many, many years ago, and I think I had an advantage because I was never raised in church. I'd never read a Bible. I'd never prayed once. So I was a clean sheet of paper that the Lord could just write His gospel on my heart. And early on in my walk with the Lord, the Lord said, Son, don't ever let the devil talk to you about your mistakes or your sins. Don't ever let him condemn you. Don't ever let him put guilt on you. If you foul up, come to me, I'll, I'll deal with you. And, and it, it's so simple. The Lord just, just said, I, I had a great dad. My dad loved me. And my dad beat my backside a couple times. And don't you know, I deserved it. But my dad loved me and I, I was never worried that he was going to kill me or that he hated me. I always knew he loved me. I never thought because I got beat that I was... Uh, that I was unloved. And the Lord just said, your dad would never send you down the street to the pedophile or the abuser and say, you know, I told you to stop doing that. Now I want you to go three doors down to that criminal down there and you're going to stay with him for a, for a day or a night and let him do whatever he's going to do to you because you deserve that. And God would never turn you over to the devil. He doesn't want the devil involved in your your, uh, your relationship with Him whatsoever. So the Lord said, don't ever, ever let the devil talk to you about your sins, your, your mistakes, your failings. 
I'm your God, I love you, and, and I'll deal with you about that stuff. I just, I knew, ooh, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. <laughs> so I've never had a problem sinning. I just sin like a professional. No, I'm just kidding. I hope you know I'm kidding. I had to say that because I know it's in the back of people's minds. <laughs> I love the Lord. The Lord loves me. So I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to hurt my, I don't want to hurt myself because I know when I sin and when I resist God, I hurt myself. I'm not, God's not loving me less and I know that, but I'm, I'm just damaging. I'm making it difficult on myself. So if I love myself, then I don't hurt myself. You understand what I'm saying? But I know that Jesus loves me. And I know he deeply cares for me. And so because of it, you know, I really believe that if no one else gets healed, I will. Why? Because he loves me. You know, if nobody else, if those, if somebody can be talked out of the things of God that they read in the Bible, all right, but I'm not going to be talked out of it because I know God really loves me. And so if it's not... For anybody else, that good stuff's for me. And what I'd like to do on a practical level is have you just kind of close your Bible or turn off your phone and stand up. And I want to challenge you, encourage you um, to put this into practice. And it, it may have to, it probably has to become a practice. Begin to make whatever changes in your thinking and in your life and in your behavior that you need to do. Challenge yourself. Confront yourself. Spend some time thinking. Put the Bible in your lap and sit down and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And challenge your own thinking. And get yourself turned around so that you can begin to say and confess, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. And please know, that there are great favors and blessings that are ready to be poured out, ready for you to walk into and to receive, that God does not want to withhold. The Bible says he withholds no good thing from he that walks upright. And walking upright has to do with walking in the confidence of his love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. So I want to challenge you. This year, you've probably made some resolutions. Make this if you can, your primary resolution. Lord, whatever Nick was preaching today, reveal that to me. Reveal that to me and help me to become that person and begin to confess, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. And let me, a couple of you probably need a little help in one area and I'll make this suggestion to you. If you're sitting there listening to this thinking, well, I really don't care that much about all this. It's all right. A lot of people don't, don't have, a, aren't sitting with a, on the edge of you know, anticipation wanting to be close to God. But you're like, well, you know, I would like my life to be better and I, and I know that it's only going to happen in the Lord. So you could pray, say, Lord, help get me to that point. Help get me to that place. Help bring me to a place of desire where I desire to know your love more than anything. So... Are you ready? Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Greater love has no man than this, that you, Lord, laid down your life for us in order to create that door, that 
access panel into the deepest recesses of our life, our mind, our thoughts, our heart. And Lord, there is some messed up plumbing in there. We know it. We are aware of it. Things flow in the wrong direction. We have some chronic operational issues in the way we think, the way we conduct our lives. But Father, I believe, according to Romans 5, 5, that the love of God has been shed abroad in every heart of those who are born again Christians. That love is there. But it's our prerogative to take a hold of it and to choose to make it the thing by which we define ourselves in our relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray you'd help every single person who is hearing this message to do just that in their life, to know they have a prerogative, to know they can decide, they can decide, just as John did, to be the disciple whom Jesus loves. That Jesus didn't single John out and say, I like him more than any of you other guys. John realized Jesus loves me with unconditional love. And so he chose to be that man. Lord, help everyone who is hearing this word to do just exactly that. Now, I want to pray for that woman or that man who right now, you are, you're up against it right now. Right now while we're praying, you are up against that horrible force that you come up against and you fight with. Every time there's some kind of a confrontation with God, some sort of a confrontation in your mind, some kind of an altar call, that sense of I am unworthy, I have a pattern of failure, I am the, I'm like that one who wouldn't enter the church and stood outside and, and beat on his chest and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Lord is calling you to come in. Jesus said, I'm at the door knocking. I pray over you right now and I command that grip of rejection, of condemnation, that word of condemnation, however it was sown into your life, however it has grown roots and has spread out into your thinking, I uproot that lie of the enemy. I command those thoughts that resist the knowledge of God's love to be pulled out of you. I pray over you right now through the power of the blood of Jesus and I command that plant, that weed in your mind to die in the name of Jesus. I command those roots and tentacles of thoughts to die and to wither in your mind and in your conscience in the name of Jesus. I command the power over your thinking that they have held and how they have choked God's love in your life. I command those roots to die in the name of Jesus. Because they oppose the knowledge of God. That is the weapon of my warfare. And I use it over you right now in Jesus name. And I command you child of God. To be free of that choking lie. That all you'll ever be is the disciple whom Jesus has forgiven. You rise up. You are the disciple who Jesus loves. I proclaim to you a graduation. You graduate from the disciple Jesus tolerates to the disciple he loves. You graduate and rise up from the disciple who serves the Lord to the disciple whom the Lord loves. 
Then you can serve Him and be happy about it and be free. Hallelujah. Receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. Now, if you